Hey, Icon and Bay City, good to be with you this morning. It is cold in Seattle and we're in our new studio and there's no heat, so I'm suffering for you and for Jesus. So if I'm moving around a little extra this morning, it's because it's genuinely 36 degrees in here. Hey, but you know what? The early church didn't have heat, neither do we. So let's get after it. Today, we are in week seven of our Father Abraham series, which is entitled, Treat God Like He's God, or How to Pray Like You're Talking to the Creator of the Universe. So. Today, Abraham is going to be talking to Jesus in a really unique way, in a unique circumstance, in one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. And it's a real look at this. But larger theme for the day is prayer. So we're going to be talking about prayer. And I know from almost 20 years of ministry now, many of you struggle with prayer. And for very different reasons, right? For some of us, we struggle with prayer because it feels like it doesn't really do anything, right? Some of us struggle with prayer because it's boring and hard to concentrate for that long, you know, to actually pay attention to something for more than 10 minutes is a rare gift in our society these days. Some of us struggle with prayer because we lack the faith. Some of us because it's embarrassing. There's all kinds of reasons why we might struggle with prayer. So what I want to talk about today is three things that we see about God in this story that might encourage us to pray. And then three things from Abraham that might be good lessons or advice for how to pray. So again, three things about God and three things from Abraham. Let's just jump right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 16. Remember, the, the context of what's happening here in the story is that God and two angels have showed up to talk to Abraham and Sarah to reiterate the promise. Remember, we just, uh, Josh just covered this story last week where they tell Abraham, hey, remember, you're gonna have a child this time next year. They're both super old. Sarah laughs at the idea of being pregnant. God goes, wait, did Sarah laugh? And she goes, no, 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 I didn't laugh. And he goes, mm, yeah, you did, okay? And so you never, you just can't like disagree with God. Like God pretty much knows all the things, right? So we're coming straight out of that. So the two angels have gone on ahead to Sodom, check things out. God has stayed behind with Abram. We've got a couple of kind of unique little behind the scenes moments here between God and Abram. So Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, says this, it says the men, the angels set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, before God decides to tell Abraham what he's about to go do, right? He, he kind of says out loud, should I tell Abraham or should I withhold this information from Abraham given the fact that I have called Abraham to be this guy, right? Not only to be the one through whom I'm going to accomplish my redemptive plan, 
but that Abraham needs to be the guy who carries on and passes on my vision for what people are supposed to be, for what the world is supposed to be, my, my kind of moral and ethical vision to their children and children's children and on and on for generations. He goes, man, this might be a good moment for me to be able to kind of unveil to Abraham what I think about a place like Sodom and Gomorrah if, if Abraham's going to be the guy that passes this along. Now, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of things in this, but I, I want us to see this, right? That no matter what the moment is bringing, no matter what's happening in a given moment, right? And, and, and in this situation, this is God going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to check things out. We're going to get into that here more in a moment and then a lot more next week. But he goes, I, I, I see this decision about whether to tell Abraham what I'm doing or not, or to kind of pull back the curtain on what's happening in Sodom. God sees that moment in light of his larger redemptive plan. So here's the first thing I want us to see, that God always cares the most about the big picture. Right? God always sees what's happening in, the, in, a, in any given moment in light of what's happening in his larger redemptive plan. Right? Like we often have like tunnel vision where we just see the very next moment, the very next thing, the very next issue, the very next pain. And, and we kind of live in this moment by moment existence, detached from context, detached from the bigger picture, and we get kind of tossed about by these lesser concerns. Not so for God. God always sees these little moments as framed in the bigger picture, right? So because of this, and this is something that all of us have experienced at one time or another, God is far more comfortable with short-term pain, with short-term suffering, if it serves the bigger picture, right? Some pain is worth it for the larger glory. Some ignorance or information worth it if it serves a greater purpose. And that's what's happening here with God and Abraham, that God goes, okay, should I tell Abraham what's going on in Sodom and what I'm gonna go do? And he goes, yes, I should, because Abraham's the guy that's going to pass on this information, pass on this moral tradition, pass on God's vision for people to generation after generation after generation. So yeah, Abraham needs to know this information because it serves this greater purpose, right? So we struggle with this over and over and over. Like I said before, we often deal with life kind of moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And we, we deal especially with pain that way. We can only see the pain in the immediate and we don't see what it can do in the long term. And this works against us, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18 says this. He goes, we Christians, we do not lose heart in the midst of suffering. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, and, and hear this in light of Paul, who has been shipwrecked, who's been imprisoned, who's been put on house arrest, who's been stoned, who's been tried to, people have been trying to kill him and drive him out of cities, he's been in riots, all of this stuff. He describes it this way. He goes, for this light momentary affliction, light 
momentary affliction, right? Like how many of us would describe the suffering in our life, if given the opportunity, right, that we would describe it as a light momentary affliction, right? That, that's not the case at all. We like to make as big a deal as possible about the smallest issues to get uh, uh, you know, to get uh, uh, sympathy, to get opportunity, to be able to leverage it for some greater purpose. Like we try to get the most, like squeeze every ounce out of every possible suffering or inconvenience to try to lever it for some greater good in our life, for greater opportunity in our life. We do this in marriage all the time, right? Like we just happen to remind our spouse of that one sacrifice we made just so maybe we can milk it for a future, I don't know, back rub, for instance, Emily, if you're watching, right? So Paul describes shipwreck and imprisonment and house arrest and riots and trying to be killed and all of these things as a light momentary affliction, okay? Because for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hashtag weight of glory, best C.S. Lewis book, okay? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's what Paul's saying. This is reflected in God's actions here with Abraham. He goes, listen, as Christians... We have the capacity, whether we live in it or not is another thing, but we have the capacity to think about eternal things, to think about things that are unseen in light of the things that are seen, which are transient, okay? So Paul is able to see his imprisonment and his beatings and all this as these light momentary afflictions because he goes, listen, we've got eternity. So sure, yeah, my outside is wasting away. Sure, I, I've got some pain. Sure, sure, I've got some suffering. Sure, there's been hardships, but it is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. Okay, so this is a perspective shift that we as Christians can have because it is the perspective shift that God has for us, that he sees every little moment in light of the macro, right? So. The little things, these little hardships, they matter, right? Like they matter to God in very real ways, but they're always framed by what he is doing in the world, right? So we have these little moments, these little pains, these little sufferings, these little needs, right? But it's always framed by what God's doing in the world, and then maybe what God is lar more largely doing in your life, right? I used a John Piper quote the other day that I love. It says that um, God is at any given time doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're maybe aware of three of them, right? That God is constantly moving and shaping and adjusting and teaching and, and, and pushing us, and we're aware of just a fraction of those things. Right? So every little thing is framed in what is God doing in the world? God's larger redemptive plan. And then even smaller, like what is God doing in your life more largely? And then what is God doing in your life this year? And then all of that frames up maybe then your feelings and your desires and your needs in any given moment. This, the little stuff, these little moments are always framed by the larger. And I will say this, that's good. 
That's good news because we can get lost in the little minutiae, the little moments. But think about how terrible your life would be if you just lived moment by moment. Your life would be way worse, right? You'd never choose to suffer. You'd never choose to wait, to delay, to work, to stretch, to push. Because those things hurt. Which, which means you'd never grow, you'd never progress, you'd never accomplish, you'd be stuck, you'd be a child. Like a child has no ability to think beyond the, the moment itself, right then, that moment. We've got a two-year-old who's about to become a three-year-old, Will, and he's great, but he is terrible at seeing the long play right? So he, we, we have to start now. He's learning how to eat his vegetables. We have to start by just putting a single carrot on his plate. This happened to me the other night. Em was out with her friends partying or something. And, and I was at home with the kids, you know, with them, loving them. And, and Will was, was just being a, a stubborn little son of a gun. And uh, he would not eat his green bean. And I had a single solitary green bean on his plate. And the kids had already eaten their spaghetti, their pasta and, and meat sauce and all of this. And, and they were long gone. And he just was being stubborn about this one green bean. And I said, listen, man, if you eat the green bean, you can have the noodles and you can have the meat sauce and I'll get you a big glass of milk. And he goes, he goes, I want noodles and I want meat sauce and I want milk and I want candy. And I said, okay, you eat the green bean and I will give you pasta and meat sauce and milk and I will give you candy. He goes, I want candy. I said, all you gotta do is eat the green bean. He goes, I don't like the green bean. And he didn't, he never ate it. He won, I sent him to bed and he never got the candy or the pasta or the meat sauce or the milk, nothing because he couldn't see the point of suffering through the single solitary green bean. He's quite dumb, he couldn't see it. He couldn't see the long-term. All he could see was that one moment. And often, hopefully, y'all are not get, still getting stuck on green beans, but there is some version of the green bean in your life that you just can't get over. You cannot see the greater good. So, when we pray, pray for everything. Pray for the green bean. Pray for whatever that thing is, that, that green bean in your life that just seems like a, 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 a stumbling block, too big for you to overcome. Pray for that. Pray for everything, the little and the big. But remember that God always sees the little in light of the big. He sees the micro in light of the macro. He sees whatever it is, that little desire, that little need, that little want, that little hope that you have, that next thing in your life in light of the biggest possible picture. Okay, so that's, what, that's how God sees your world. That's number one. Number two, God is not indifferent to the pain of his people. Back to Genesis 18, verse 20, says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So there had been some outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah because there's a ton of wickedness. And we're going to see that next week and just kind of a little tip to the parents. Next week, we're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. So 
use your best judgment, okay? Because we got to read the story and I'm going to be smart about it, but you know, use your best judgment, okay? So there has been an outcry from God's people about Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? God has heard that outcry, He's heard them complain about all of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had heard it and now he's responding to it. And everything that God has heard makes him think that they are worthy of judgment and wrath. Okay, that there's some bad stuff happening down there and that God should bring justice and wrath against them. But before he does that, he wants to see it for himself, right? He wants to actually go down there and make sure it's true. Now, what's interesting about this, this is the third time we've seen kind of a story like this play out. Okay. The first was in the garden, right? Adam and Eve have sinned. God shows up in the garden and is calling for them. Where are you? What have you done? What's gone on? What did you do? What's this, the decision that you made? Is that meant to suggest that God doesn't know the answer to those questions? Not at all. Right? We saw just a few chapters ago when God comes to Hagar. Hagar had fled from Abraham and Sarah and was in the desert. God comes to Hagar and says, where are you going and from where have you come? As if God doesn't know that? Of course God knows that. Right? So here we have again that the outcry has come to him from his people about Sodom and Gomorrah, but he wants to go down and see it for himself. Okay? So episodes like this are not meant to suggest to us that God is not omniscient, that God doesn't know everything. We see a million other examples where God absolutely is omniscient. So this is not like gaps in God's knowledge. It's a demonstration of God's concern and his care and his careful justice. God is in no hurry to carry out wrath against his people against his creation, right? Like even the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are his people in the sense that they are image bearers of God meant to reflect his glory, meant to thrive and flourish in his world. So just because they're doing crazy stuff, and we're going to talk about that next week again, parents, but listen, like he's in no rush to just go down and whoop them, right? Like God is careful about his justice. And he wants to make sure it's deserved. And this is really different from the, the kind of local gods of that day, which were unpredictable and capricious, and, and, and you just never knew what they were going to do, and they would carry out wrath for no good reason, right? And honestly, it, it's a way in which God is really different from us, right? And the way in which we care for people, and the way in which we kind of carry out wrath and justice. And so we can look at a story like this, a little moment where God pauses before going to carry out his justice. And we can be assured not only that God is a, a just God who cares for people, even extremely wicked people, but also that God is not indifferent to the pain of his people. Right? See how Jesus describes God in Matthew chapter 6. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which he says he, he gives them everything that they need, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Right? So God is responding to the prayers of his people, the outcry of his people against the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is acting in response to that. So some of you might be in really hard situations where people are being unjust to you or being wicked to you and you're crying out to God. You should know from this story and, and from a dozen others that God cares about the pain. He is sensitive and attentive to the pain that you are experiencing. So we can pray confidently knowing that God hears our prayers responds to our prayers, and he cares about the suffering that we are experiencing. So one, God cares most about the big picture. Two, God is not indifferent to the pain of his people. Number three, we should pray with God's character in mind. Verse 22, so the men turned from there, the two angels turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, first, I just want to point out that Abe's got guts, right? Like this is a pretty tough move for Abe, for him to kind of judge God in this moment and go, wait, 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 you're telling me you're going to go down and whoop Sodom. What if there are righteous people down there? You're going to treat the righteous people the same way you would treat the wicked people? You'd wipe them all out, the righteous with the wicked. I thought you were the judge of the world. I thought you were just. I thought you cared. I thought you were honest and righteous. That doesn't sound like a, a just judge to me. right? So first of all, Abe's got some guts here to stand up to God. But more importantly than that, notice what Abraham says. He appeals to the character of God and says, you wouldn't act that way because that's not who you are. You, you're not the kind of God like all of these other local gods. You are not a God like all of these other men and women who are in power and use their power for their own sake and are kind of random and capricious about how they carry out wrath. That's not you. You are the just judge of the universe. Right? So when we pray, we ought to pray with God's character in mind. We know who God is. So when we go to him in prayer, we ought to remember who he is. Abraham calls him the judge of all the earth. He goes, you're the judge of all the earth. Be that. Be the just judge that we all want you to be. Be the, the, the one who carries out righteousness and sees the plight of the needy and sees the innocence of the innocent and doesn't call them guilty. Right? So we know who God is. 
The, the Bible describes and explains who God is. So when we pray, we ought to just ask God to be God. That he, we know that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, that he is loving and redemptive and gracious and merciful, that he cares about the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, that he is strong and he will hold the strong accountable for their strength. So we ought to pray prayers that reflect what we know about God and what we know God cares about. And I would push you on this. If you find yourself praying prayers that doesn't align with the character of God, right? Something that is selfish, something that is self-seeking, something that you know is, is, is carrying out injustice in some way, but it will serve you in some way, or it will get you something that you really want, but you know will probably not be what you need and probably won't be for your greater good. I would say two things. One, don't expect that prayer to be answered. And two, I would think long and hard about what it is, what, what that desire is in your heart and in your life that would make you so misaligned with the heart of God. So when you pray, ask yourself, is this the kind of thing God would want to do? Right? Like in a vacuum, again, remember, God's always thinking about the big picture. So he may not give you what you want in a particular moment because he knows what he is doing. He may withhold the candy until you eat the green bean. That might be the case. But, but in the end, like, does God want you to have candy? Yes, such good candy. But sometimes you got to eat the green bean first. Okay, so ask yourself, is this the kind of thing God would want to do? Does God want to be generous with us? 100%. Does God want us to be joyful and satisfied and fulfilled? Yes, all day, every day. So when we ask for things that would bring us genuine joy or peace or healing, know that that is exactly what God would want for you. That's not to say that that particular moment is going to get answered because God may be doing a hundred other things, but at least we can pray things that we know, yes, God would want to do that. Ask yourself, does it align with what I know about him? Have I seen him act in this way anywhere else? Have I seen that in my own life or in somebody else's life or in the scriptures? And then maybe ask yourself, what specific stories or verses in the Bible might I be able to appeal to for my request? So maybe go, God, will you reveal to me what it is I need to know about this situation the same way you revealed to Abraham so that I can then teach it to others, so I can carry that on to my children, so I can instruct the people around me. God, will you, will you erase my enemies? Will you take down my enemies? Or will you redeem my enemies the way you did Nineveh to, to be able to teach Jonah ab about who you are and the, the, the kind of immeasurable reaches of your redemptive love and grace? Will you, can you tie some sort of story or verse to it for honestly, for your own good, not to appeal to God on, on uh, grounds of like, well, you did this for Jonah. Why can't you do it for me? Or you did this for Job or you did this for for Moses, why can't you do this also for me? But to simply say, like, I know this is the kind of thing you like to do. I know this is the kind of thing that you have done. Will you please do that for me? Which then goes with 
point number four, that we ought to pray with the humility of our human limitations. So immediately after Abraham goes, hey, how could you do this to the righteous in Sodom? I think Abraham maybe kind of realized what he had just said. And so he catches himself in verse 27. says, Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, But suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. I love this line. Abraham goes, listen, I'm nobody. I am but dust and ashes. But what if there's only 45, right? Like you see Abraham starting to kind of get some confidence here with God. That he has been bold enough to ask hey, if, if there's 50 righteous people, we spare the city? And God goes, okay. And he goes, listen, I know who I am. You're God. I'm not. I'm dust and ashes. But maybe I could ask for one more thing, right? The humility that Abraham has here is extremely important, right? That he is able to come before God and acknowledge, like, I'm not God. I'm dust and ashes. You formed me. So I I don't have some special knowledge or some special insight here to make my request legitimate. I'm just asking, could you please, right? So this is incredibly important when, when we come to God in prayer because the reality is you don't know the future. He does, God does, but you don't know the future. So pray like that's true. Pray like you don't, not only do you not know what's best for you, you don't know what's best for others. And you don't know what God is doing or wants to do. You don't know much at all and neither do I. So this shouldn't stop us from praying and asking God for things, but it ought to humble us in the process, right? That we would come to God and go, listen, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know the future, but if you could heal me in this way, gosh, I would be thankful for that. Or if you could provide me this opportunity, I've got this job that I really, really want and I really, really need. And it seems like the kind of provision uh, that you would want to do for me and the kind of job that you have made me for. So please, will you give me this job? But you know what? I'm dust and ashes and you're all creator God. So I submit to you my lack of knowledge and my ignorance that I don't know what's best. I don't know what the future could hold, right? God has invited us into his throne room to come into his presence, as Hebrews tells us. So we ought to act like we are in the king's throne room, which means be humble, be gracious, be honoring, not presumptuous or entitled. The presence of the king is both an honor and an opportunity, right? And we should treat it as such. It's an honor to be there. So be humble, but it's an opportunity to ask something of the king. So be bold, right? We've all prayed prayers in the past that we now look back on and thank God that they were not answered. 
right? Like every ex-girlfriend I have ever had, I am so thankful that God did not answer those prayers, right? Like we can all look back on those moments. I remember in high school, Garth Brooks was a big deal. That's how old I am. And he had that song, Unanswered Prayers. And I remember that when I first heard that song, I was like probably out of some one breakup or another. And, and I heard this prayer, this song, Unanswered Prayers. Some, sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And my head exploded. I'm like, oh my gosh. That's so true, Garth, right? Like this was, this is the truth of our lives. Like our limitations cause us to pray for things that like 15 minutes later, we're super glad weren't answered because we just don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know what God's doing. Again, God's doing 10,000 things in our life at any one time. We're aware of maybe three of them, right? Like that's just wisdom. And so we pray for things all the time that like very shortly thereafter, we're like, actually, I'm not sure if that one's gotten to you yet, but pause, right? It's like that moment when you order food, but where you can still cancel it. Like you hope you're still in that moment because you're like, actually, I don't really want the chicken, okay? This should, this should give us pause, should humble us to remember that, man, we don't know everything. And there's been a hundred things that we've wanted that we're glad we didn't get. So we should walk in the footsteps of Abraham and pray with the humility of our human limitations. Number five, pray annoyingly and audaciously. Verse 29, again, Abraham spoke to God and said, suppose 40 are found there. He's talking them down now. Then he said, uh, I, for he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Verse 30. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And Abraham, what's really interesting about this is Abraham's using a, a very common ancient Near Eastern and honestly not that ancient uh, Near Eastern bargaining technique. If you've ever been to Asia or Africa or even South America and you go into some kind of bazaar or kind of festival kind of space and you're buying stuff and you're bartering with people, it's always so much fun as a, as a person who is very competitive. I love this environment to go in and go like, what'd you say that was 10 bucks? Hmm, maybe you give it for me to you give me 10 bucks and I take it off your hands right like that bargaining opportunity is so fun Abraham has guts I'm not sure I have where he has bargained God all the way down from whooping all of Sodom down to okay if there are 10 righteous people there then I will spare Sodom Right? This, this reminds me of a, a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 that called the parable of the persistent widow. And I want to read it to you. Luke 18, 1 through 8. It says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I always love it when the gospel writers tell us the point at the beginning of a parable or even at the end. But sometimes the parables, they, they just kind of hang out there and you're like, I'm, I have no idea what this means. Luke tells us, that we always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, here's the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. 
But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is kind of a remarkable uh, parable that Jesus tells because the kind of God figure in the story is this unjust judge who won't give justice to this poor widow, right? Basically, Jesus is going like, listen, if an unjust judge will eventually give justice to this widow simply because she comes and talks to him over and over and over and over and over. How much more, kind of echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 6, how much more will God care for you? Like there's just this constant invitation from God to come talk to me, come ask me, come be with me, just ask. That's all you gotta do is ask. I tell my kids this all the time. If you would just ask, and ask in a nice voice, I'd basically give you anything. My, my line that I tell them all the time is complaining gets you nothing but consequences. I tell that to my kids all the time. I mention it to my staff occasionally, okay? Complaining gets you nothing but consequences. But if you would just come and ask nicely, there's almost nothing like castle, pony, unicorn, whatever you want. If you would ask nicely, Paolo, I would give you the unicorn, okay? Like it'll happen, right? But just ask. Just ask nicely. And God is inviting us. He's, literally, Jesus goes, if you just bug God, here's what I learned. It's, it's almost like Jesus is pulling us aside and going like, if you'll just bug God over and over and over and over and over, just come and talk to him and come and talk to him and come and talk to him, he will eventually relent and give you what you want. I mean, this is kind of a crazy story, but it actually matches Abraham's experience with God in Genesis 18. Where he just goes, okay, but what about 50? What about 45? What about 40? Do I hear 37? Do I hear 32 and a half? Like, what if it's a baby, right? Like, he just talks God down to 10 righteous people. Okay, so that's one. Pray annoyingly. But also, there's an audaciousness in Abraham's request here. Where he's trying to talk God out of destroying a really wicked city. Right? There's a big ask there. And Tim Keller tells this story that is probably apocryphal about Alexander the Great, but it's a great story and it illustrates this point perfectly. So I'm going to read it for you. Keller says, there's a story about Alexander the Great. It may not have actually happened, but perhaps it did. I like that. It says, a general came to him one day and said, I've been a loyal soldier for you all my life. Now my daughter is being married and I would like you if you would be willing to pay for the wedding. Alexander the Great said, fine, I will do that. You've been a good soldier. Go to my treasurer and tell him what you need and he will give it to you. He went to the treasurer and when he told him what he needed, the treasurer ran to Alexander the Great and said, did you say you would give this man anything he asked for? Yes, said Alexander the Great. The treasurer replied, do you know how much it's going to be? No, said Alexander the Great. Let me tell you how much he's asking for. Then he told Alexander the Great of the enormous sum that had been requested. The treasurer thought that Alexander the Great was going to be enraged, but he said, give it to him. The treasurer said, what? Why? Alexander replied, don't you know what an honor this man is doing me? 
by asking for such a ridiculous sum, he shows he believes that I am both rich and generous. Do you believe that God is both rich and generous? Or do you believe that God is poor and stingy? To some degree, that's reflected in your prayers. We see example after example after example in the scriptures of God inviting us to ask audacious prayers, to ask him for big things. Because we believe that God is rich and that he is generous and we ought to pray like it. Lastly, God's going to do what God's going to do. Verse 33, the Lord went his way. So after that last request, God takes off. When he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. I'll say this, the active prayer does as much or perhaps more work on us than it does through us. I remember um, when I was younger, getting kind of locked up on the theological idea that prayer could move the hand of God. And I was part of a church that was big on prayer and big on kind of spiritual warfare. And that was the mantra, prayer moves the hand of God. And I remember just getting kind of locked up on that, seeing not only my, myself, but also the people who were praying going like, do I want them moving the hand of God? Do I actually even trust myself to move the hand of God? If what we've just said about our limitations and God's omniscience is actually true, do I want my prayers to move the hand of God? What if I, what, what if I ask for something and he does it and then I go, oh, actually, that was a terrible idea, but I'm a dummy, so I didn't know it was a terrible idea. And now God's done that terrible idea because I asked it and, and prayer moves the hand of God. So I got like all locked up on it. But here's the reality. Prayer is as much about you being in communion with God as it is you getting things from God. The thing that God wants the most is us. Just wants to be with us. Just wants to, to, to have relationship with us. Because he knows that what we need most is not the things he can give us, but it's, it's him. That's what we need most. Many of the things that we ask for from God are, are tied to some root, deep desire in us, some need in us that we're going, God, if I had that, then this need would be met. And God's going, actually, it's not that. It's just me that would meet that need. So God goes, come pray, come talk to me, because here's what you're going to figure out that you don't need that. You need me. You're going to ask me for things, but when you get the things, you're going to realize it's not the things, it's me. So if we don't pray and we just go try to make those things happen, we have no chance to actually get the thing we need, which is him, because we have shortcut around him to go get the thing that we think, but he's going, just ask me for the thing, and maybe I'll give you the thing, maybe I won't, but in the process, you're going to get me, and that's what you need. See, God's going to do what God's going to do, and that's good news. I, I, honestly, I don't want prayer to move the hand of God. I don't want my prayers to move the hand of God because my prayers are often shallow and self-serving and ignorant. I want God to move God's hand for my good and for your good. That's what I want. And that's what God does. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is all-knowing. God is going to do what God is going to do. And we can't change that. But we can be changed into the very people he has made us to be by coming to him honestly, openly, boldly to know him and to be known by him. 
And that's the win. Right? Like, God is saving the world through his son. And, and this whole story, I mean, this whole story in Genesis is just the lead up. Right? Like our story is just the lead up. It's important kind of in its own way. Like it's the backstory, but it's not the climax. It's just a small part of the Jesus story. And the Jesus story is the story about how God is reconciling and saving and restoring and redeeming all things back to himself. And so these little moments, these little stories, our story, all, all of it, every little need, every desire, everything that we want that would satisfy the thing, all of it is wrapped up in the big story that God is weaving throughout history to remind us, to teach us that what we really need is him, that what our world needs is him. That every need, every pain, every hunger, every desire, all of it is met in him. So we go through this whole process where at the very beginning, God goes, man, I'm, I'm working my plan through Abraham. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him what's going on here so he can see and, and pass on to future generations how sin can make things go really, really badly. How just a little bit of brokenness, a little bit of rebellion can take a whole city, a whole culture in a really wicked direction. Because I, I need him to see what I'm doing. I need him to see who I am and what I'm going to do to restore this world back to itself, back to what, what I created it for. I need him to see all of that. So we're going to go walk through these moments. We're going to have this banter. We're going to have this bargaining. But in the end, God is restoring and redeeming and reconciling. And that's the good news. That's what we need more than anything. So we go to him in prayer. Pray boldly. Pray annoyingly. Pray audaciously. Pray according to the character of God. Pray knowing that every little moment is wrapped up in the big story. But Whatever you do, just go to him because it is in him that you will find life. Not in these other things, even the good things that you go to him for that he will often give to you because he's rich and generous and he wants you to have it. But the most generous thing God can and has given you is himself. So go get that. Let's pray. Jesus, we have been given a great gift in you, your life, your death, and your resurrection is a great gift from a rich and generous Father. God, I pray that we would see you in every need, in every desire, in every want, in every lack, in every hunger, in every pain. We would see how you are the solution, the solve. And we would cling to you. We would enter your presence knowing that we, we have things that we need. You've created us for needs, but we will find all of them met in you, by you, and through you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.